Welcome to Insights with Sights, the symphony of scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca/podcast. We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Seitz. Trinity Sunday is the one Sunday of the church year dedicated to the mature confession following on from the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Pentecost Sunday, that God is three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The collect for the day lines it out nicely to confess The true faith is to acknowledge the glory of the eternal trinity and in the power of the divine majesty to worship the unity. A bit of a mouthful and sounding symmetrically algebraic and not doxology or an act of worship of the living God, which of course is at its heart. I think we should stop and ask why lectionary readings might be thought appropriate to our Sunday at all. Are they a kind of two-dimensional curtain at the back of a stage setting the scene, but in front of which the real Trinity drama plays itself out? That is, given the non-biblical terminology, the Trinity, a real challenge, I think, is getting around the idea of thinking of the Trinity as a piece of later theological reflection arising from church councils as the so-called orthodox position defeated bad alternatives on either side. A fourth century idea one would have to backdate into a lectionary context. If instead we are to think of the confession of the Trinity as arising from the sentences and paragraphs of Scripture itself, which was the orthodox position en route to Nicaea and Chalcedon, just how might a lectionary properly display that? Which Old Testament lesson, which epistle, which psalm, and which gospel reading would we hear? If the confession of the Trinity exists out beyond the New Testament in time, then why any readings from it at all, much less the Old Testament, just recite the creed and let that carry the post-biblical weight? Of course, it's possible to say, like in a debate with the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to your door, that the divinity of Christ and the Holy Spirit come indeed from the New Testament itself, have a New Testament warrant, at least in some kind of germ form, if not more explicitly, and cite the relevant texts. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and quotes from Paul's letters or the book of Revelation. 
Once this argument gets nailed down so it would go, we could find Old Testament texts which would come alongside as warrants in a kind of retrospective sense, working back from this hopefully solid New Testament base, a search for threesomes and a witness whose older literary sense is being manipulated or recalibrated, though of course for understandable reasons of subsequent development in thinking, rather like seeing the beginning on the basis of the ending where the clues have been provided. Yet in fact the reverse was actually the case. Texts like Proverbs 8 and Genesis 1, which we read in years A and C, were quite central to the arguments early Christians made about God as Trinity, based upon a single Old Testament scripture they shared with their Jewish interlocutors and in time with others, while the New Testament itself was coming to form. And of course, the New Testament itself testifies to this way of thinking, what was happening in Jesus and who Jesus was was in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus opened eyes to the Scriptures he claimed were everywhere about him during his resurrection eye-opening time with the apostles. And in his earthly life, Jesus could robustly defend the first commandment, the Lord, the Lord alone, he is Lord God, and at the same time say, I and the Father are one. These two seemingly distinct things rhymed in him. David called him Lord. Before Abraham was, I am. Moses spoke of me. The use of a Greek shorthand, kurios, already in place for the divine name, Adonai in Hebrew, Lord, and its application to Jesus himself as Lord in confession and in worship makes the point efficiently. And it is the Holy Spirit as Lord who enables our seeing this and confessing it as an act of praise and worship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. So our reading this morning from Romans 8. And as Paul puts it elsewhere, no one calls Jesus Lord except through the Lordship of the Holy Spirit. In the central poem of Philippians, and in our lesson from John a few weeks back, God has a highly exalted name that he exalts to give his Son, a name above every name, the name of the one Lord God, so that in turn at his name, the Lord Jesus, every knee shall bow to the glory of God the Father. This is a Holy Spirit-driven congruence, one lordship differently displayed and incarnated, which arises from the promise of Isaiah the prophet given to Israel in the Holy Spirit's speaking to him. For by myself, by my name, I swear to me, I, the Lord, the Lord alone, 
every knee shall bow. So Isaiah 45, rhyming, as it were, in Philippians' central poem. When this central and fairly uncomplicated fact is in place, one Lord Jesus, one Lord God, one Lord Spirit, we can see that there is no back curtain and main stage, scripture and confession, but one and the same divine drama across the scriptures and time both. Our lectionary itself, no matter where it sets down, is a testimony every Sunday to this central theological fact at the heart of the Old and New Testaments together. The creeds use a different conceptual framework, God of God, light of light, but the same judgments about God's identity in Father, Son, and Spirit cover and link them both. A shorthand form of this Trinitarian and scriptural alignment is found in the Nicene Creed's brief declaration that the Holy Spirit spake by the prophets. By the prophets refers to the prophetic character of the Old Testament scriptures taken as a whole through and through. So while it's true that certain specific texts were favorites in the history of the church's exegesis, it is God himself and the way the monotheism of the Old Testament functions to describe him in his dual, majestic, and intimate character that is prophetic, majestic, and yet personal and intimate. So it is, for example, that God spoke in creating. His word is his intimate disclosure of himself toward us. In the beginning was the word. And God said, so Genesis, Elohim is the plural, majestic, divine, transcendent self, and his voice is himself towards us and toward creation. So our psalm, his voice is upon the waters. His voice is a powerful voice of splendor. His voice splits flames and makes the calves skip. And his voice raises up in us a voice of response. All in the temple cry glory. His voice is his incarnate lordship. His word. The fathers routinely had recourse to this way of conceptualizing, as did the early Jewish tradition as well. So Moses did not look on God's majesty, but by his voice, God made himself known. Isaiah, the prophet in today's reading, knows he is in God's presence. And what he claims to see of God's self creates in him a sense of being lost, of losing his bearings, of being unclean, of needing to have his sin expunged. And so God's, God's guarding attendants, his seraphim, oblige. Then he's able to hear God's voice, the voice of the Lord, which of course appears with plural reference, who will go for us? Just as in creation, let us 
make man in our image. The spake by the prophet's work of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Lord and the Abba Father are the Elohim Lord God of Israel's experience, and through them, by this speaking, shared through them to us our own, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The gospel reading from John 3 focuses on this Holy Spirit disclosing. Now, when it pertains to the voice, the word, as the Lord himself incarnate, and not being made known under signs and figures as to the prophets of old. For this disclosing, for this grasping of Jesus as Lord God in the flesh, one will need to be born from above. The Holy Spirit will act as before he spoke by the prophets, but now appropriate to this final disclosing season, Jesus incarnate and standing before Nicodemus is the very Lord God one with his Father present in him, as Nicodemus realizes, and by that presence able to do signs in his earthly frame. He has descended from above, as he says, the veil of signs and figures now giving way to a distinct manner of lordship in the flesh. This is no easier to grasp or more proximate in some special metabolic sense, for even as incarnate Lord, those around him struggled to comprehend him as Lord God, descended from heaven and returning in glory. And now for the time of his sojourning as this descended Lord, he will be lifted up in his incarnate frame, just as the serpent figure of death and life and healing Moses lifted up in his season in the wilderness of God's speaking by the prophets. The very spirit bearing witness with our spirit is that spirit speaking by the prophets, enabling new birth from above as promised to Nicodemus, and enabling us by his adopting power to cry out, Abba, Father, as Paul says, and also Jesus is Lord, and come Holy Spirit, as it were in our own choir of threefold, holy, holy, holy. We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of Scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca slash podcast. Thank you, and we hope you tune in again. This podcast is a ministry of Wycliffe College at the University of Toronto.